Grab a Bible, open it to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, where we'll begin in just a moment, Genesis 3. I don't know if I did that, but kind of frightening. Good to see you this morning. Uh, I am glad to be back. Many of you have made the comment that I haven't been here very often. I know. I'm wondering if Sarah put you up to that. Uh, I, uh, I was in a meeting this last week in Camden, which is a place I did not know existed before they called me and asked me to come preach there. Got to know some good people down there, had a good, enjoyable week with them, uh, a neat little church, very close-knit little group, and I enjoy being with them. But glad to be home. I do want to tell you I have one more. It's next week. I'm going to be in Pine Bluff next week preaching for them. Uh, so if you have the opportunity, come down, but don't expect me to preach something you haven't heard before, okay? You guys are my guinea pigs. You know all my stuff. So... Uh, uh, if you come down there, I'd, I'd, ha- I'd be happy to see you, but I'll be there next, beginning next Sunday through next Friday, uh, starting the 22nd. But I'm glad to be home, glad to be with you, and uh, looking forward to what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. We are doing Q&A this morning. Normally, we do Q&A on the uh, second Sunday, but the second Sunday was last week, and I was out of town, so I thought I'd bump it down to this Sunday. Now, for those who are visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. I want you to feel welcome. We want you to know what we're doing this morning is not uh, just a free-for-all where you ask me all the questions you might have about the Bible, uh, but instead is some questions that other people have previously asked me and uh, that I've taken some time to prepare an answer for. I have four questions this morning. Uh, I was, when I sat down with Sarah, I said, well, I know the people who asked me, of the four, only one of them is here, which is always a great feeling, but that's why we record things, so let's make sure we're recording back there for those that... Uh, that ask questions that weren't able to hear, but we can answer these for the benefit of everybody. So first question is this, uh, why did God create man? Uh, The gist of this question is, why did God go to all the trouble of creating man, particularly when God knew that man would sin and sort of mess the whole thing up? What was God's point? Why would God do this? So I want to give you a few answers to this. Uh, Most answers like this are going to have to be piecing things together from different parts of the Bible. I don't think that we have sort of the clear statement of the plan of God, uh, at least not in just one simple answer. Uh, But I'll give you a few answers, and the the last one is going to be the one that I would go to most readily. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, Genesis 3 and verse 8, after God has created man, it says, Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So up to this point, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them a job to do. He gave them a rule, one rule, which they broke, uh, and he had made this perfect order, but he also lived with man. And so the first thing I would say is that God created man because God wants to live. I put in man. That should be with man. I don't know who made the PowerPoint here, but they did a bad job. That should be with, not in, uh, although in, it certainly does come true in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament applications of this. So what I'm getting at is when you see God creating man, what does he want to do? He wants to walk through the garden. He wants to talk to the man. The man is hiding. The man and the woman have defiled themselves, and so God is, where where are you? It seems as though prior to this, the typical interaction would be between God and man as they live together in the garden. So I just want you to see this thread that runs from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, that God lives with man in Eden and in the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, God lives with man, God comes to be with man again. So uh, if you look in the Old Testament, that's usually portrayed as God wanting to live with Israel. So when God calls Israel out of Egypt, he lives among them. He leads them in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Where he stops, camp stops. When he moves, camp moves. 
And then when they get into the promised land and they develop the, uh, they build the temple, then God's, the glory of God's presence comes into the temple. You have the, the incredible uh, times when you see the cloud, like when Solomon dedicates the temple. And then you have Ezekiel who sees the vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. It's not always a visible thing, but it's certainly symbolic to this fact that God wants to live with man from the beginning to the end. Now, in the New Testament, that becomes more personal. The church is the temple of God. We read in 1 Corinthians 3, but it's also that God dwells in the bodies of his people. So our temple, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We read in 1 Corinthians 6. So there is a very intimate connection between God and his people, and God seems to have always wanted that. Particularly, that's a danger, that's a threat because of sin, that God cannot live with his people when they're in sin. So God has to redeem them from sin because he wants to live with them. But God wants to live with man so badly that he's willing to offer his son uh, to cleanse man and to accomplish that goal. A second thing you might say is that God wants his creatures to glorify him. Why did God do all of this? Well, there is a glory aspect to it. Uh, this is Numbers 14, 21. Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Okay, the idea of all the earth filled with his glory. The earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's Habakkuk 2. Uh, Jesus prays your kingdom come or teaches his, children to, his uh, disciples to pray your children come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea of God being glorified by behavior that shows we have an allegiance to God. Uh, we were created by God. One that's particularly powerful is Psalm 148. We sing this a lot with uh, Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah, where you have the, all the creatures. And then I, I love that song because in the last verse, the people come in and you've got all the different kinds of people. And people are just creatures, but they're creatures who have the choice as to whether we will glorify God. God wants his creatures to glorify him. Now, part of that is God deserves glory. But part of that is also, this is about a creation declaring the praise of its maker, okay? I was made, and so I need to praise the one who made me because he's done something great. And there is yet another aspect of glorifying that's important, which is uh, glorifying God is what's best for us. You know, when man gets wrapped up in his own plans and schemes, it's trouble that happens, particularly the Tower of Babel is the great example, okay? You know, here... Here are all these people God made, and then God, you know, kind of gave them the, the restart with the flood, and yet here they go immediately, you know, get, getting up to their old schemes again, trying to make a name for themselves. That's not, the, that's not the goal God made us for. Our goal is to glorify God, to submit ourselves to God, and so if we don't live by that, if we just live by our own, sort of by the seat of our own pants, then we're going to have trouble. All right, and then the third thing I would say, and really the, the best answer I would give, is that God wants us to willingly love him. If I only had one answer to the question, this would be it. I don't, because I'm, I'm talking about it, and you guys are all just sitting there. But the, the, this is the answer I would give most readily. So this is the, the great command of the, the Old Testament. I love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the great commandment of the New Testament. The first commandment, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. So you have the repetition of this is the main purpose, the main goal, the main expectation God has. So, so loving God is the important part of why God made man. But the thing about love is you can never force love or else it's not love. Love has to be freely given. So there has to be along with that some free will that God gives man the ability not just to love him but also to hate him not just to accept him, but also to reject him. And I think you can explain a lot of the things that we see in the world based on that goal of God. God wants us to love him. That's why he says that. But also, God uh, is willing to put up with a lot to allow that to happen. So a couple of things to sum this up, and we'll move on to the next question. 
I'm impressed by the fact that God feels that these things are all still possible even though man has sinned. God still wants those things and God's going to send his son so that he can still have those things uh, even though we have tried to mess that up. God also feels that people are worth the trouble. Do you ever feel like people aren't worth the trouble, especially some people? Okay. I think it's important for us to remember in those moments how God feels. This aspect of God, God doesn't give up on people the way we tend to. Uh, so God is even willing to intervene in human affairs to accomplish these purposes. And I believe that's why God created man. All right, second question. Uh, who was Cain afraid would kill him? So we're in Genesis 3. Let's just turn the page Genesis 4. Who was Cain afraid would kill him? Genesis 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So first child we read about is Cain. The second child is Abel. And as the story goes, we're not going to read through it right now, but in a fit of jealousy, Cain kills Abel. And again, the Lord is there, just like in Genesis 3. Where are you? What, you know, why, aren't you why are you hiding? Here, you know, what, what happened to Abel? Where's your brother? And uh, Cain, of course, fires back at God, you know, my, my brother's keeper. But then he says, what have you done? And he punishes Cain, and he banishes Cain. In verse 12, uh, you'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now let's read in, in Genesis 4, verse 13. It says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and any, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I think it's interesting that when I read commentaries about this, most of the commentaries focus on what is the mark. As, I don't know. I I just read that and I just say, I don't know what the mark is, but I'm, I'm more curious about some of the things Cain says because they're very odd. But uh, Cain, in his punishment, is going to no longer be a farmer. Okay, that's what he was before. He says, you're going to be driven away from the ground and he's going to be a fugitive, hidden from the face of the Lord, he says. Hidden from the face of the Lord. It's a very interesting expression. But he says in verse 14, whoever, shall find, whoever finds me shall kill me. And so the question that we have here is, who is Cain afraid of? Because if these are all, the only four people on earth, which are now three because Abel has been killed, then, you know, who is he afraid of? Who is he saying is going to kill me, going to find him and kill him? And so the Lord puts a mark on him so that whoever finds him knows they'll, he'll be avenged sevenfold, which we'll talk about that in just a minute. So I want to say there are some hints in this text and in the surrounding parts that there are more than three people on the earth. Uh, if you look down in verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So, first of all, Cain has a wife, right? Second, Cain builds a city and names it after his son. A city implies more than just two people, right? Okay? If it's you and me, it's me and my wife, we don't have a city. We have a house, Okay, but a city implies that there's going to be at least some population. All right, so there's that hint. And then in chapter 5 and verse 4, it talks about Adam. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. So there are other people. Uh, we also don't often think about it, but Cain and Abel are adults. 
at the time when Cain murders Abel. So there's a possibility that they have had children. Uh, Cain is having children. Adam is having children. Uh, so there's plenty of time for that to happen, although we don't see anything about Abel having children. So it's also possible, if you're wondering, well, where would those people come from? It's also possible that God can make people. Uh, the only objection I would have to the idea that God would make other people the way he made Adam and Eve is that Eve is called the mother of all living. Okay, and the mother of all living may imply that everybody comes through that line, although it, it's possible that there are some other explanations for that. But I think a, a better way to look at this is that Cain's statement is looking to the future. Okay, if anyone finds me, Cain knows that the population on the earth is increasing and will increase. And we have to remember, the only person that's died up to this time is the one he killed. Okay, so... It, it, Cain may not know how long he has to live, but he might expect to live a good long time because there, up to this point, has been no natural death. So Cain is looking forward, and he says, you know, there's going to be this expanding population. I'm going to live a long time. I don't want it, my end to be violent the way my brother's was, although there's some irony in that considering he caused it. But I think the other thing I would say, just to, just to throw this at you, it's possible that what we're talking about here is not just somebody, I'm going to come across some people who don't like murderers, or I'm going to come across people who are violent. It's possible that what Cain is saying is that a lot like later on, there's going to be this whole system of an avenger of blood. If somebody in your family is killed, you can go avenge their blood unless there's some kind of city of refuge or some kind of sanctuary. So it may be that Cain is saying, you know, I'm going to meet a lot of people, and a lot of them are going to be close relatives of Abel, because after all, we're all kind of the same family here, and they're going to be angry about what I've done, and they're going to want to take vengeance, and uh, so I'm, I'm asking that nobody stumble on me and all my wandering and say, this is the guy, and then kill me. So that could be the focus of Cain's statement. Whoever finds me, I'm going to have a history with their family members uh, because of what I've done. So I think that gives some, at least some uh, possible explanations to who Cain was afraid would kill him. Uh, but it's a very interesting um, passage because there's you know, not a lot of information about the details surrounding it. All right, I had another question from this same vicinity of the text, and it is, uh, what does Lamech mean about 77 times revenge? So let's read in verse 17. Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad, father Mahujael, and Mahujael, father Meshuahel, and Methushahel, father Lamech. Aren't you glad you're not reading? And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the, hype, and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. All right, so we're tracing the line of Cain. You can see that. That's why I read all those names. Because we got Cain's line, and then in chapter 5, we're going to have Adam's line, which is going to go through Seth instead of through Cain. But Lamech is a great-great-great-grandson of Cain. Here, though, he doesn't only claim connection, because he talks about in verse 24, if this happened to Cain, what's going to happen to me? 
He claims a connection, but he is also like Cain because he is a violent man. You see that from what he says he has done. Uh, I read some commentators, and again, I had some different views than some of the commentators, which kind of makes you feel weird, right? Like maybe, maybe I'm out in left field, but I'm, I'm getting used to that. But um, commentators see Lamech as a really aggressive, blustering kind of guy. Like he is saying, hey, you want to get revenge on me? Come try it. You know, almost begging people, let's get some more violence because, after all, he's already been violent. It seems to me, if you look at verse 23, he says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. So he is saying, somebody hit me and I killed him. So if Cain, who had an unprovoked attack, is going to be avenged by God, how much more am I? I mean, my murder was justified. Now, there's no thought here about, you know, maybe you shouldn't kill everybody who hits you, but... He is bragging, and he is saying, I think he is saying, I feel justified in what I've done, and God's got my back. Because if God's going to avenge Cain sevenfold, then he's going to avenge me 77-fold. But the question is, what does he mean by 77-fold? I mean, how do you avenge somebody 77 times? Isn't, you know, when they die, isn't that kind of the end of it? Well, I think you have to ask the question then, what is, what is sevenfold revenge? So let's go back to that in verse uh, 15. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So what does that mean? How do you kill somebody seven times? Uh, well, these are some suggestions. Could mean uh, Cain is going to be killed and six of Cain's relatives, something like that. Other people are going to be killed uh, because of what Cain has done. Uh, it could be generations that were cursing the family of the man. So it's not just him, but it's down seven generations that they're going to be cursed or in some way uh, have violence against them. Uh, that would be an even stronger deterrent, by the way, in a family-centered society like these are very early on. Now, of course, that also implies, going back to our second question, that there are a lot more people than just these three. If they're talking about families that might be cursed to these you know, different generations. But uh, it also could just be poetic for God saying a complete. You know, we often say seven in Scripture is a complete number. Well, it could just say God is saying, I will completely avenge. And uh, so it'll be uh, done in that kind of formal but uh, symbolic way. So 77 times, I think you can see, well, I, I don't know that that would be taken literally, that he's got 77 people to kill or 77 generations. I think Lamech is saying, take what Cain had and bump it up okay, as much as you can. We're familiar with those numbers, by the way. We know those from the New Testament. We'll talk about that more in just a second. I, I think the main thing I see in this story is that even in the very beginning, there has always been a need, as long as man has been here, for there to be some kind of system of justice because the very first two kids, one of them kills the other. And now there is this question, this open question, what do we do about this? Should the man who killed his brother be allowed to live? And so there is this need for what are we going to do about situations like this where we do evil to one another and some evil crosses a line where people are no longer able to live? How do we handle this? And so in the very primitive stages, you see the need for that. It's going to be more fleshed out in uh, the law of Moses about how that should go. And then there are, of course, some thoughts about that even in the New Testament era. Uh, my Takeaway, what's intriguing to me is that these numbers are the numbers Jesus uses to talk about forgiveness. So Peter asked Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And up to 
seven times. And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven, or your version might have, like the ESV does, 77 times, which would make it the same as Jesus saying, in forgiveness, we break the cycle of violence and vengeance that began with Cain and began with Lamech. You know, I'm impressed by that. I'd never seen that before um, studying through this, but I think it's a very interesting twist on Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. All right, so uh, that's what I think about Lamech. All right, so I got one more question, and that is, uh, what does righteous anger look like? All right, so somebody asked me, uh, how do we understand, is there the idea of righteous anger, and uh, how do we know the difference between regular anger, bad anger, and uh, righteous anger? So I'll take a stab at that. So Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4 and verse 26. So uh, there is a way we can be angry and not sin. Not all anger is sinful. We need to understand the distinction. Some anger, in fact, we would say is justified. I would even go so far as to say some anger is warranted. There are situations where if it doesn't make us angry, we would wonder what's going on. It would signify there's something wrong uh, because there are some things that demand an emotional reaction as proof that we care. If we care about something and that something is threatened or harmed, there is a natural response uh, that is anger. So there are examples in Scripture of people acting out of their anger in their righteous people. I don't think we can criticize Jesus for being sinfully angry, considering we know he had no sin. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. He makes a whip of cords. He turns over their tables. Uh, He drives the sellers of money changers out of the temple. I can't see that in any way but to say that there has to be some emotion to it. And in fact, the disciples remember the passage that said, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Okay, so there's a zeal there. There's a passion there. Uh, This is Mark 3 and verse 5. He, that's Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So they're, they're trying to trick Jesus into healing on the Sabbath, and he's frustrated. I mean, how can you not care about this person and instead try to trip me up for doing something that's not even bad? So you've got all of that, and it it just makes Jesus angry. You have uh, Moses, who's angry when Pharaoh has this hard heart in in Egypt. Uh, Moses is angry. You remember when Moses is on the mountain meeting with God, and God says, get down, your people have defiled themselves, talking about the golden calf. Moses is angry. He's so angry that he grinds up the calf, and he puts it in the water and makes the people drink. He is angry, okay? But it's We'd have to say it's a, I mean, he's right to be angry. Like they did wrong. And uh, of course, he knows that it's jeopardizing their relationship with God. Uh, Moses is also angry with Korah, rebels against his and Aaron's leadership. There is an instance of righteous anger that we don't talk about very often. I am, I am certain that if you were to ask an ancient Jew about righteous anger, there is one story that they would go to. It is the story about righteous anger, but we don't talk about it. And I think you'll see why in just a second. So I want to read it. It's in Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. This is the story that I think, yes, somebody like Paul, this is where he would go. And yet, we don't talk about it that often. So uh, you'll see in the context here, Israel is wandering. They're in the land of Moab. And they begin to worship the gods of Moab. 
Numbers 25 and verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. Okay, so you see what happens here. It is a very serious scene where Israel has begun to not only worship idols, but there are also some sexual rites involved in the idol and the worship of this, this god, Baal of Peor, variant of Baal. And so God gives the edict, you know, everybody who has done this needs to die. There is a plague that comes on the people. And yet, in spite of all of this, the people are weeping at the tabernacle. Okay, they are upset. The people have gathered to do that repentance thing you sometimes see in the Old Testament. And they are devastated by this. And this man brings this woman, we would call her some kind of prostitute or a cult prostitute, brings her into his tent where his family is. And everybody sees it. Even Moses sees it. And so Phineas says, this is too much. Enough is enough. And he goes and kills them both. Now, you know why we don't talk about this story as a good example of righteous anger, right? It's because he killed people, okay? That's pretty obvious. But God says, this, this is good. What he did was good. So, this is an example in Scripture of righteous anger. Now, I don't mean, please, 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 let me be very clear. I am not saying if you get righteously angry, you can hurt people. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I don't believe that's what Scripture is teaching us here. I am saying what you see here is Phineas is provoked by the brazenness of this disrespect for God. And he's also concerned about how this is going to affect the people. Because after all, when this kind of thing happens, people die. Even people that aren't directly involved as a result of these plagues and the different things that happen to the people. All right, so uh, if we wanted to talk about righteous anger, I would say this. Uh, righteous anger is not selfish. There's a difference between uh, people who are angry. And most of the time when we get angry, right, it's about me. Okay, my feelings are hurt. You did something to me. You offended me. You upset me. Uh, Jesus is not angry about himself when he goes into the temple. Jesus is not angry personally when they are hard-hearted against him. Okay, this is about them, and he is saying, this is frustrating, but it's not about me. Same is true with Moses on the mountain. I don't think he's saying, oh, I wish these people would just do what I do. Instead, this is about their disrespect for God, not about him. So I think right away, we need to be very careful because almost all the time when we get angry, it's about us. So we can't just say it's righteous because it feels righteous. This is the thing. We feel like we're always right to be angry. 
And that is not always true, especially when we're in the moment of feeling the anger. So what we're saying here is there has to be a long, hard look before we really are uh, saying that what we're saying and feeling is justified. All right, uh, righteous anger can be prompted by rebellion, sin, or insult against God, something to do with God, okay? So the temple, God disrespecting God's commandments, um, the golden calf, especially it seems to me there is a brazenness that some people have that prompts this, okay? When the, the brazenness of them setting up shop in the temple, the brazenness of them making a golden calf while Moses is on the mountain, the brazenness of bringing this woman into your tent while we're all weeping over things like this. There is a brazenness of that, that if you don't feel something, there's something wrong. That's what I'm saying, and I think that's what these stories are teaching. Uh, righteous anger can be prompted by pain caused to others. Sometimes this is about... I, if I care about somebody and somebody is hurting them, I mean, think about family. That's going to cause us to be angry, right? We're going to retaliate. We're going to do something. And in the same way, God tells his people, take up the cause of the widow and the foreigner. Take up the cause of people who can't take care of themselves. And when we see people being trodden on, that leads us to say, no, I, something's got to be done. Uh, righteous anger can also be concerned about sin spreading. I think that's Phineas. Phineas is concerned. If this happens, what's next? This is too much. Something must be done. Somebody has to stop this. Somebody has to say something. Do you hear that? There is an anger to that, but it's not because it's about me. It's not because, oh, I've got my feelings hurt. It's instead about concern for other people and concern for God and his cause. All right, so I just want to give you a couple of questions here. I know I'm a little over time. Uh, we need to ask the question, am I responding out of my personal hurt, fear, or frustration? Is this about me? Uh, what precisely angers me about this? I think we need to be able to define this. And especially when we get angry, we're not usually that thoughtful, are we? Okay, let me be very clear. This is what's happening. This is why I feel this way. And I think that would help us because it'll help us distinguish between things that are about me and things that are about God. Uh, am I trying to fix the problem or merely express my anger? You know, is there anything productive or redemptive about what I'm trying to do? And then finally, even if my anger is justified, am I acting rightly? There are still things we can be angry about and not sin. So if I'm angry, there is still the danger that I'm going to do and say things I should not do and say. So I need to be careful about that. But my gravest concern about righteous anger is that we always think our anger is justified. We always think it's righteous. And so we need to be very careful and thoughtful about that to balance the self-discipline we need with zeal for God and zeal to care for other people. All right, thanks so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.